You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Okay, welcome back to this third and final session on looking inwards. Um, and before I introduce the session, um, I have a great pleasure of being able to engage in what, we, what you might call the Alternative Academy Awards for Defence and Security. We launched a campaign uh, some months ago, um, which was about 60 seconds. It said, 60 seconds for a safer world. We asked people um, to submit entries to say, actually, if you were to speak to leaders, politicians, those who govern our peace, security and defence agenda, what would you say to them? And what would you be your one idea um, to, to create peace and stability in the world? And so we were, we were really pleased. Um, to get a number of entries across, across the piece and some high-quality entries uh, in that also. And um, it's part of our agenda to reach citizens on a more regular basis. We have a Debating Europe platform which reaches 3 million um, uh, unique users on a whole range of policy areas and this is part of our tradition to actually... How do you actually canvas and engage citizens more directly in wider public policy matters? So, we have three finalists that have been shortlisted by a panel of experts and what I'd like to do is first show you the three finalists before I then do the kind of gold card thing um, in a moment. So over to our people to show the videos. One of the major threats we currently face that affects all humanity is the dark side of technology. By 2030, digital transformation will have reached a critical mass with unprecedented volumes of information accessible to online users across the globe, exposing our critical infrastructure to threats at a pace never seen in history. Ensuring we stay ahead of these technology threats will require inclusive solutions developed by stakeholders from all backgrounds across the civil military spectrum. The current diversity gap in technology is keeping the defense and security sector behind the curve, making us increasingly vulnerable to the dark side of technology. By the summit in July 2018, NATO and EU should issue a diversity in technology pledge, which will identify specific goals and objectives to address pressing security challenges across the transatlantic area. These goals and objectives should be achieved by 2030 and will require a yearly progress report at the NATO and EU ministerial meetings. Increasing connectivity and reliance on technology has brought many opportunities, but also new security challenges. In cyberspace, trust is hard to come by, which hampers information sharing, instant response and overall cyber resilience. We need to look beyond the potential Cyber Geneva Convention and more towards effective cooperation, coordination and harmonization. Concretely, I propose to create an independent international cyber agency specifically designed to act as a neutral body and build trust within the international community. It would be composed of independent experts and funded by both industry and governments to ensure impartiality. Key objectives include providing strategic direction, bridging capability gaps, fostering inter-stakeholder synergies and accommodating for divergent understandings. This initiative would certainly aid in the transition from a wild, wild web to an open, safe and secure cyberspace. 
changes in demographics, climate, and living standards place many developing countries in a precarious state. For a safer world, we have to make it more resilient and support these transitions. In our digital age, we have the largest number of problem solvers the world has ever seen. Best practices exist around the globe, and solutions can truly come from anywhere. To share and implement them, we must create proper incentives and support mechanisms. By working together with affected countries, the international community, we should create a set of international prizes based on the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals, open to everyone and focused on finding solutions to our most pressing problems. Each prize would offer a cash reward of between five to ten million dollars, which winners would then use to further develop and implement their solutions. By defining our challenges and rewarding those who can most effectively meet them, we can go a long way to make the world a safer place. So, as <clears throat> you can see, all very, very good ideas. It was a tough, tough choice, I have to say. Uh, and the quality of entries was very high across the board. And so our expert panel had a, a very difficult choice. All three ideas are excellent. Uh, but we had to make a decision and a choice. So um, we have, let me open the golden envelope. This is a first for us, by the way. Um, so... The third most successful entry um, is Alexander Michaela, um, and I'd like to invite you up um, to, for your award. Congratulations. Well done. Well done. We have... There you go. A nice little... It's not quite the Oscars thingy, but, you know, hey, it'll go well on your table somewhere. And chocolates. Oh, wow. Can I also thank my parents? Of course you can. Don't cry, though. Don't be too emotional about it. Good. Excellent. We have a... Sorry, I forgot. Because I don't do this often. We have to have a photograph. Just here, a picture. It's very tall. (laughs) Okay. Well done. The second most successful is Nadia. Well done. Congratulations. Here's your award and some chocolates too. Well done. Thank you very much. And in, in, the, in, in first place, um, it was James Gallup-Jones. Unfortunately, he can't be here, but we have a pre-recorded video from him. Hello everyone and thank you for watching my video on making the world a safer place. Cybersecurity is a topic I am deeply passionate about and I'm absolutely thrilled to have got this far in the competition. I would like to take this opportunity to thank all my friends for supporting me in making the video and also a very special thank you to Friends of Europe for providing me with this terrific opportunity. Enjoy the conference and until next time. Okay. Our expert panel, you know, made up of people from NATO and elsewhere, were all very clear that all three ideas had traction uh, and would be something that would consider uh, taking forward in some shape or form. So all of you have the opportunity for that. Um, the winner um, had the, has the opportunity to receive 1,000 euros or give it to charity uh, as well. So uh, we'll see what James uh, does with his particular gift. Uh, but, so, but 
the point being is actually it's really important uh, for agencies, organisations like ourselves and others to really canvas and engage uh, citizens out there about ideas because actually sometimes you never know what you might get and you often get some very, very good ideas and also it's a good consensus builder with citizens on the ground. Okay, so thank you all very much for that. I'm now going to move to the session. I invite our speakers to join me here. And as they do... We're very efficient. Your names are on the chairs. Um, looking inwards. So we've, we've looked eastwards, southwards, now inwards. This is about Europe and its relationship to the wider world. In particular, given the nature of events over the past 18 months, everything from Brexit, um, the stance that the US has taken, the kinds of turmoil that we're experiencing in the east of Europe and elsewhere. We've seen the opportunity that's been taken to actually Europe to get its act together in a more substantial way um, on a number of defence and security integration and more cooperation and collaborative efforts. Uh, and we've seen that, you know, in particular Mogherini taking what I would describe learning by doing approach, i.e. not waiting for consensus but actually getting ahead and doing stuff. But will it matter and does it count is the question. And what we do know is that we need to think deeply about some of the um, institutions that have been created and some of the policy structures that have been established, not least just in the past six to eight months. And what I suppose... One of the key questions will be, given the Defence Union was mooted almost 50, 40 years ago, uh, we've seen it being vetoed in a number of ways, and I suppose some people might say Brexit is a blessing, because it's no longer vetoing a number of things that people in Europe, in particular continental Europe, wanted to actually sign up to. But is it a blessing in disguise, or is it, um, uh, is it not? Um, we, I want to, before I invite the speakers, just share with you some quotes from citizens. So as I said, we have a Debating Europe platform uh, that reaches three, uh, three million uh, unique users across, across Europe. And it's quite interesting what some of the citizens are saying. So George from Germany, Europe cannot... No, it's OK, it's not up there. I'm going to read it out. <laughs> Don't worry. <clears throat> Europe cannot yet look after its own defence because we are not yet organised. There's no plan and no institutions in place for decision-making. Do you agree? Maya from Bulgaria, Europe is not... Europe is not in danger from armies anymore. The danger comes from an evil ideology. We don't need conventional military might to defend ourselves anymore. We need debate and persuasion. Jose from Spain says, Some fear that a European army would mean duplication of structures. But think again. Currently, we have 28 parallel chains of command in the EU. Finally, Jose from USA, From a military perspective, you do not need a single European headquarters. To protect a front line, you can have interlocking fire zones. So in short, you, absorb what you, you observe what's in front of you, and so does the army next to you. But by a wide spectrum, you guard their zone as they do yours. So this is what citizens are saying and thinking about the current state of affairs. Um, we have uh, a very interesting panel. Uh, but before, again, I, I, I invite you, I want to also reflect on the quotes from our VIP debaters as a part of our Debating Security Plus platform. So the first is from Bert Kunders, as you can see. Although the transatlantic alliance is, is still vital for our security, it is undoubtedly the case that we will have to rely more on our own capacities and enlarge them in order to defend our common interests, values and norms. Jamie Shea um, 
Success lies in better coordinating NATO and EU activities, particularly when it comes to capacity building in North Africa and Middle East, where NATO has expertise in military training and education, and the EU is more experienced in border security, police and judiciary. And finally, uh, the EU has so much more leverage when it shows a unified stance. Ain't that the case? So let's see. Let's see if what our, our panellists make of some of what we've heard from citizens, but also some of our VIP d debaters. I'm going to turn first to James Morrison. James, Head of Cabinet to uh, European Commissioner for the Security Union, Julian King. Um, much has been said about PESCO, and um, much is expected of PESCO. From your perspective, and I, this, is a, I mean, this is a question you're obviously going to say, of course it is, was to say, actually, is it going to make a difference? Uh, but I'd like you to be honest and share in this intimate company what you really make of the kind of the, you know, the SWOT analysis of PESCO. In particular, is it going to solve the information sharing dilemma is, in terms of intelligence? Is it really going to lead to greater integration of defense capabilities, and in particular cyber, which is, you know, the big, big number one game changer for, for, for peace and security and defense matters? Over to you, James. And in five minutes, obviously. It's on. It just works. Brilliant. There you are. See, I don't go on many game shows, so I don't get to use it very often. Of course, you stole my best line. Of course, of course it is. Mm. No, I think the interesting thing about, uh, about PESCO and the decision of 23 member states to, to invoke that, that provision of the treaty is uh, that it does mark a shift, and it does mark a shift a shift on, uh, in, terms of, in terms of European security and defence. Some of us, and I look at my friend Terry sitting in the audience there, were around way back in the days of the Maastricht Treaty. And if you look at PESCO, if you look at the articles of the treaty on PESCO, you can see that they were foreshadowed back in, I think it was J425, shows how old I am. Um, so it's always been there as a possibility that groups of member st states could... could decide to, to cooperate more closely. Why does it matter? It matters because when you link it into all the other things that have, have happened since those sort of Maastricht days, you see there's a progression uh, through uh, Amsterdam, through Nice, Nice which created a set of structures, through the convention and then ultimately the Lisbon Treaty which... which uh, created the HRVP role, which you know gave a right of initiative there as well as the member states on this thing, and the creation of the European Defence Agency back in 2004, as I remember. You see a trend which is much more structured in terms of focusing on capability gaps, in terms of assessing what member states have in terms of, of capabilities, and now with PESCO in terms of really encouraging them to stand by those commitments. Because the thing about PESCO is, if you invoke those articles, you are basically taking a binding commitment to do certain things and a commitment that will be monitored by the council. So it is important because it provides an extra impetus to, to do things. Aside from that, why does it happen now and why did it not happen back in 2009? Well, there were lots of other things to do in 2009 when the Lisbon Treaty came into force. But I think it's a reflection of the fact that the threat surface and the threat landscape looks very, very different. 
Back in 2009, you could still probably... It's really before the world seriously started falling apart with the, with the Arab Spring, with everything else, with, with, with Ukraine. And you could, you, could, you could still camp on the sort of peace dividend. And you'd had the financial crisis. Now, uh, eight years since 2009, the world looks a much scarier place. And it's interesting what some of your award winners were, were saying. I think the fact that the, the threat now is increasingly not just, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't write off a conventional military threat, but increasingly a cyber threat, mm. a cyber threat where 98% of the threat surface is civilian, where the threat surface is so massive mm. and so huge that uh, I think the collective view is that uh, we all need to take a lot more responsibility for our own security because absent of anything else that, that, that is going on about the role of the US or whatever you want, mm -hmm. the fact is that the threat surface is much bigger now and the means of mitigating that threat rely much more on collective action in the territory where the, where the sure. threat actually James, is. Creating PESCO, I mean, what we know about clubs is that you join them to get something out of them. It doesn't give you common endeavour. Rarely. And we know that from our experience of Europe. But what are you hopeful of? Remind me not to join a club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, seriously, in terms of those two issues, the, the cyber and the information sharing, information, do you, what's, what are the levers you think are available through PESCO to achieve that? Well, PESCO allows you to uh, identify areas where you want to develop capabilities and where you, where you want to cooperate more closely and to be, and to be held to account for, for doing that. Mm. Um, so there's no reason that you can't choose. Uh, you might start with areas like field hospitals or whatever, but there's no reason why you can't move into areas, for instance, cyber defense, cyber capabilities, where the costs of... Developing capabilities are, are quite high and the amount of effort that you, that, that you need to do it. So it's, a, it's an excellent framework for, for providing a structured work, work program on sectors that you agree with a, with, a, with a group of other member states are key sectors. Now, we know capability-wise across the, across the EU, we have a sort of mapping of capabilities. We know that, as people have said in that, you have a lot of duplication of capabilities. But we know with the threat surface that we have gaps. And part of, for instance, what, from a commission perspective, mm. uh, we've sought to do in the package of measures we brought forward on cybersecurity recently uh, is, to, is to start to plug that gap in terms of building resilience creating a credible deterrence, which comes back to what people were saying about international rules and actually getting caught, and, and reinforcing defence and cyber defence. Now, cyber defence is one of, the, one of the seven areas covered by the EU-NATO joint declaration and the 42 actions and all of that. But giving, that, giving those commitments sort of physical form, as it were, Something like PESCO is very useful for that because it can drive the level of ambition. Okay. So I, I wouldn't write it off as, you know, no, just clearly, another too development. To, too early to tell, but I mean, no. it's important to scrutinise its yeah, capability yeah, given yeah, our experience up yes, to this point. Yes, because if you sign up for PESCO, you are basically making a commitment. You're making a binding commitment to do something. Okay. So it's not 
a cost-free club to join. Indeed, indeed. OK. Um, I'm sure our members in the audience will have questions on what you, have, what you said in particular about Pe PESCO's um, cap capability and capacity to be the thing that we need, especially as many commentators have said, actually needs to be more ambitious. Uh, but let's come back to that. Let's turn to NATO. Jan Havranek, your policy advisor in the NATO Secretary General's uh, office in terms of policy planning. Um, one of the key determinants of success around greater integration of defence and its capacities um, is uh, military mobility, if we're going to talk about brass tax issues. What's your take on that for the moment, in terms of whether, what are the issues in relation to that, in terms of the current state of play, but also can it improve EU-NATO relations as a result? Yes, uh, thank you, uh, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, first of all, if I may put this into a broader context of NATO's role in the security of Europe and, and get to your particular question at the end, uh, uh, obviously NATO-EU cooperation has been the talk of um, in the town. It's been a strategic priority for NATO, uh, not only since Warsaw, but especially since Warsaw. And uh, we have to understand NATO's role um, as really being the cornerstone of Europe's defense and security. And I know there's been a bit of a pushback in some of the quotes about uh, whether NATO is too relevant uh, or whether it's uh, focusing too much on the collective defense. I mean, NATO is adapting and has been adapting to all the threats and challenges. Uh, and um, in order to be able to adapt and to deliver on the uh, three core tasks and all, all, uh, all its missions, it has to work with partners and it cannot go it alone. And first of all, it needs the individual allies in terms of defense spending doing the homework, uh, building resilience, as we've heard, uh, bulk of whom are European allies and EU members as well. It also needs uh, institutions such as the European Union, United Nations and others. And it also needs, uh, needs uh, partners uh, to work with uh, in terms of projecting stability, uh, etc. So in that context, I would say that NATO-EU cooperation is a complementary effort. Uh, it's a natural effort and it's not uh, in, um, in competition. And in fact, if you look at the various history of NATO-EU relations, the only time that it has really worked was when these two were working in sync and uh, not uh, not against each other. Um, so, of course, I mean, we uh, pay a lot of attention to PESCO at NATO. Um, uh, we welcome PESCO uh, effectively because anything that can bolster European security can essentially bolster NATO. And, of course, I mean, there are things to be looked at, such as compatibility with uh, NATO's defense planning. Uh, and I, for example, having worked in the defense uh, policy community for a number of years, uh, I've seen PESCO and NATO's framework nations concept as an evolution of an... Uh, smart defense and pooling and sharing approach that came out of the financial crisis 2009-2010. And this time, because the, the, the threat landscape has changed, it's much more serious. The defense spending is much more serious. So uh, I think we're all a bit more hopeful uh, and... Uh, uh, definitely, um, uh, this needs to be a joint, joint effort. Now, uh, when it comes to the military mobility itself, uh, the, the question you asked, mm. uh, I see this as the potential game changer for European security, uh, perhaps even bigger than, than cyber, and we can, we can dis uh, discuss this, because it is so vital for NATO's ability to deliver on collective defense and deliver on other missions to be able to move the troops uh, around in and around Europe. And, um, but it's also important from non-EU allies' point of view. Um, 
especially the United States and Canada, who provide troops and reinforcements from outside of Europe. So I think it needs to be, Europe needs to get it right. Uh, it needs to get the military mobility right. Uh, and it needs to work in close coordination with NATO on that particular one uh, when it comes to standards for logistics, etc. So in other words, if there's a lot of discussion on the use of EU common funding, for example, uh, to improve military infrastructure, and I know I'm uh, over time, um, I would argue that NATO standards should be taken in, into account. Uh, only in that sense, uh, only in that case makes um, you know, such a project, be it under PESCO or within EU entirely, uh, sense. What will it take, though, to improve military mobility? What are you looking at? What well, are you looking for? First of all, political will. <laughs> sure. Uh, if I, if I want to make Is it... Is PESCO uh, the vehicle for uh, this? Could be potentially. I mean, it's one of the flag it could be one of the flagship projects, as I as I understand. Uh, and of course, uh, PESCO needs to be first of all formally launched. It's been announced, but uh, then we need to see how we're going to fit it into the framework of uh, NATO EU cooperation. And but political will is the, the stumbling block. I wouldn't say it's stumping block. It's the essential condition. Okay. Same thing, but never mind. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to thank you. Thank you. Very, we'll come back to that because I think, you know, um, it's an interesting viewpoint, but it's, it kind of, it's that gap between rhetoric and reality, isn't it? That on the one hand, you have this kind of movement of creating structures and um, uh, frameworks, yet and at the end of the day, just as much as the European project as on this issue, it's politics that actually, and leadership that seems to stifle progress. Um, Aud, I want to come to you. Um, building weapons together is also another component part of integration. Um, what's your take in terms of how successful we are at doing this, of building weapons together and procuring? Um, let's just say that um, the portrait or the landscape has been mixed. Um, if you go back in time, uh, the uh, joint procurement programs major for major weapon system has happened for several years, several decades. This is not a new issue in the European uh, landscape, in the European military landscape. Um, there's been uh, some of them that have been very successful, but a lot of them have been unsuccessful, and this is usually those that are uh, discussed about in the press, which does not necessarily create the good conditions to promote these kinds of issues. Um, it's been also, but it's still, and it's been uh, believed a lot that uh, buying weapons together, designing them, developing them, testing them, and then procuring them, mm -hmm. is one of the major conduit to greater European integration mm -hmm. and cooperation in the field of security and defense. Um, so far, it hasn't ne necessarily had that kind of impact. There has been um, creation of new companies that, that we call that separate trans-European companies, which are owned by more than one European countries, such as Airbus and MBDA, but have, efforts have fallen short of a large-scale um, consolidation process on the supply side in Europe, which would have created possibly uh, conditions for more interoperability, more common platforms and system together. Is that to do with the fact that it takes a long time to build these things and bring them to market, or is it about, again, the political will to actually have, I mean, can you imagine, I mean, in terms of Europe having a joint procurement process, it blows my mind in terms of giving that we don't do other things. Uh, what that would look like is phenomenal. Yeah, well, I think both of the, the reasons you mentioned okay. are, are also responsible. Political will, um, 
can be an issue, in, especially in countries that have our large arms production capabilities, such as France, Germany, Sweden, and Italy. Um, for reasons of autonomy of supply, what the French like to call strategic autonomy, they do not like to have uh, to be dependent upon uh, an external supplier for some of the equipment that they feel would be very essential to their own defense, national defense. So fragmentation along borders, along countries, is still very high for some of them countries. Uh, however, time frames are also an issue. Developing large weapon systems, combat aircraft, surface ships, submarines, and so on, armored vehicle, can take anywhere from 20 to 35 years. Um, maintaining the level of effort it takes, overcoming the challenges of developing new weapon systems. If, any, if anyone has, have, has had a look at the A40M development, costs overrun, um, some disappointments regarding some of the subsystems and so on. It, it, this is not an exception. This is actually uh, the norm. I would like to remind everyone that the F-35 uh, combat aircraft developed by the U.S. has the program started in the early 1990s, but was designed in the 1980s. This is defense production for you. So, up, of course, for all decision makers and uh, planners, this is a big challenge to, uh, to, to deal with over time. Especially as politics change and you have the electoral cycle and that you threats. do and politicians change and threats, obviously. And threat perception. Um, as, as, as was mentioned earlier, the threat has shifted uh, or the perception of the threat in Europe has shifted following the economic crisis. Um, and therefore, requirements will tend to change. Cybersecurity has also become a large, you know, a large issue, a concern. Unfortunately, this is something uh, at CIPRI that we have, we're looking at how to address this from a quantitative perspective. How can we give it a figure? How much does, you know, how much does it cost a cyber weapon? And so these are really difficult uh, issues to tackle, honestly. Mm. Um, and so um, it remains uh, an, the, the threat perception and new issues arising from different technology uh, developments mm -hmm. are also um, something that will, will impact on procurement plans and will impact on design and test and development plans for the future. Mm. There's also a market there, isn't there? Is what you described yes. the French option of strategic options, as it were, which is really about saying it's quality, but also it's about the money you earn from the product you're developing. And no, no one wants to share that money if you're going to make sure your GDP increases as a result. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of discussion about the impacts of um, defense spending or uh, procurement spending on GDP. Uh, and also on, on, on employment. Um, I guess there are exactly. different ways to calculate these. Um, sure. Some of them are, might be overestimates, in my opinion. <laughs> um, we, did, we did some of those calculations for larger arms-producing countries. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry I'm over time. Uh, mm. But just quickly, uh, letting you know that most of the figures that have been published so far overestimate because they go from supply side. So that means that they're adding arms company sales together, arms sales together. However, these companies sell to each other. So that means that you would be double or triple counting. So it's dodgy accounting, basically. Not dodgy. I think it's just a, a way of doing things. Dodgy accounting. That, 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 it's that. dodgy accounting. 
if you're, you know, if you're right. doubling up unnecessary, that's dodgy accounting. Let's put, let's put it, let's but call it just, spade a spade. Just yeah. to mention on a, on a final note that resources are available in Europe to do these projects. Mm -hmm. the, um, total military spending of European Union countries minus the UK is $198.6 billion. Mm. With the UK, it's $252.6 billion. This is a lot of money. It's uh, three times what Russia spends, by the way. Indeed. Yes. Thank you very much. You. Good point. I'm sure, again, we'll have lots of uh, comments or questions on, on that particular topic. Last but not least, Paul, Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe, um, contributing editor at Politico, but also author of our most recent study um, uh, on uh, Germany jumping over its shadow. Um, Paul, you've been writing about this stuff for decades and you've been commenting that actually we've been misfiring on this agenda for at least 20, 25 years. Is it any different now and why, if so? Or what do you think? How do you read the runes at the moment? Thanks, Tom. I, I, I like your reference to all the decades. That's why um, <laughs> Friends of Europe... Sorry, I didn't mean to me, age you no, in that's that why way. Friends of Europe has, has appointed me a senior fellow because all it means really is an old chap. Yes, <laughs> um, yes I have been uh, uh, following European defence for decades and it's true that uh, it has been a serial disappointer which has flattered only to deceive, I think, uh, for a long time. So what's different now? Well, the threat environment we've heard already, I won't go over that too much, but, mm. um, uh, you know, the, the change um, in the behaviour of Russia, uh, the uh, rise of Daesh, uh, Islamic State, um, the, the instability the, the, that followed the uh, Arab Spring, uh, the uh, climate and uh, uh, demographic-driven uh, problems of the Sahel and sub-Saharan Africa. Um, all of those have, uh, have contributed to what Shada in her introduction called the Ring of Fire mm -hmm. rather than the Ring of Friends around Europe. Um, and then the financial pressures within Europe itself, you know, um, financial and political pressures. Um, France can no longer afford to do as much uh, as it has been doing and would like to go on doing in defence, Germany can no longer afford to do as little politically um, as it has been doing uh, in defence. And therefore, there's a need uh, to pool resources which is greater than before. Uh, and finally, I suppose you'd have to say the great British foot has been taken off the, uh, the break of European defence and the, the UK is now very keen to cooperate with all sorts of things it's spent the last 20 years trying to prevent. So um, for all of those reasons, uh, the stars are more aligned now than they've ever been. Okay. If you look at it in, de in, in detail within countries, um, they, they have, of course, made this commitment. And I, and I haven't mentioned, I should mention, uh, because it is a driver of it, um, President Trump and the, uh, um, the, the fact that the United States' commitment to NATO no longer as clear as it was uh, in the past. Uh, and also, this began before Trump, the, the United States sort of gently tiptoeing away from European security and thinking that Europe is largely a problem solved or a problem that Europeans should be doing more to solve for themselves. Put all that together, we have an environment that favours it. PESCO, I mean, it's easy to be disappointed about uh, all the weasel wording that accompanied the commitments and the first, you know, the, the beginnings of PESCO. Um, some people, particularly the French, but to a degree also the British, you know, wanted a, a hard core of serious military uh, uh, capable allies to move forward as a vanguard and, and you know, 
drag the others along behind them. Uh, Germany wanted the opposite, which is to say a big tent, a regatta start, um, uh, giving nobody an excuse for sort of free riding, but at the same time making everybody feel that they had a stake in the success. Um, the German view, which I think was not unenlightened, has prevailed. Um, but I think that means that a lot of what happens in the reality of European defense will, will not happen inside PESCO, but bilaterally, trilaterally among those players. And so there, it has part, to be a chef sacher. Okay. Crucially, it will come down to the relationship between the French president and the German chancellor once we get a German government. Um, there have to be trade-offs that only national political leaders can make of the countries that actually have the military capabilities and the military industrial capabilities. Uh, we, you know, you take the lead on developing the, uh, the next generation air, aircraft or air platform. We'll take the lead on developing the next generation tank and so on. Trade-offs where there's a win for each country involving all the European countries that have serious defense industries. Then the leaders have to sit on their military and say you will do it on a, on a single timetable and you will do it uh, with a single set of requirements and not a sort of Christmas tree of requests. Uh, and then they have to sit on the industry and say you will deliver it, we will have one lead nation for each of these projects, one prime contractor, and the work will no longer be shared in a Buggins turn way, which led to these disasters which you oh, so well described. We're no longer going to have, you know, I, I order 73 aircraft, so that gets me, you know, 73 150ths of the work share or whatever, and all this sort of, or, or that, you know, a left wing has to be made in Italy while the right wing is made in Spain, and according to different specifications and with different testing. So, on, I'm going to do a little shameless plug for my report because um, I wouldn't you, you, may be you may be intimidated by the size of it, but that's because it's bilingual, so you only have to read half of the paper. Um, on pages 78 and 79 in the English version, you have a, my, my stab, it's back of the envelope stuff in the journalistic way, of beyond the rhetoric, a to-do list for European defense by 2023. And there you'll see things that I think are realistically achievable under PESCO, you know, medical integration, cyber, a European police and justice corps for, you know, pre-conflict and post-conflict stabilization, uh, European logistics, engineering and infrastructure. This is partly the stuff that you've been talking about with, a, with a, um, uh, tanks without borders, but also... Um, it, it goes to, you know, do you know that Europe, each European country has its own testing and, and, and qualification system for, for military systems? So uh, uh, even when they produce a weapon system together, it may pass the test in Germany and fail it in Belgium or the other way around. Um, and that's got to stop. And that can stop because the Germans say, well, you know, we'll stop the day everybody uses the same uh, requirements that we use. You know, our standards are the best. Exactly. It's um, a matter of and trust. And that's the problem also about, yeah. no, 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 that's another thing that has to change, is arms export policy. We have a ridiculous okay. system where Germany has actually rolled back from its past agreements with France and is, is being difficult about uh, the France exporting jointly produced material uh, to, their to, to its clients. Um, and, you know, that is a major game stopper okay. for future industrial cooperation. So those sorts of things have to be dealt with. If they're dealt with, um, I'm reasonably optimistic that more will come out at the end. Okay, I'll come back to you. I don't want to give you more time because people think I'm being invidious because you're a senior fellow. Um, um, but... <laughs> um, 
what do you make of what you've heard so far? Um, good, a number of hands in the audience. Okay, three indeed, straight off. Okay, lady here. You, as you said, you know, the microphone's in your seat. Press the button. Say who you are. And again, no kind of uh, long hello, speeches, yes. Do you just hear a me? question. No, yes. no, no, it's just a question. Good, good, good. Uh, my name is Elena Donova. I'm from the Russian Mission to NATO, and I've got a question, I, I don't know, to whoever wants to, to answer it. And the question is about the military, uh, military mobility. And Mr. Havranek was calling it a potential game changer in the European security. So the question is that now you would be investing a lot into this uh, uh, movement of infrastructure, equipment, troops and so on uh, inside Europe as a way to react to internal and external crisis. At the same time, we see a lack... Sorry, excuse me. Shh. Yeah. Let's respect those who are speaking. Exactly. Okay. So at the same time, uh, we see a lack of... Uh, um, appetite on the part of Europeans to really engage into military operations, be it in Afghanistan, for example, now that the Trump administration is really pushing for more uh, active participation on behalf of the allies and partners in the Afghan mission resolute support, but there is no appetite. So the question is, how actually do you gauge this initiative to build military mobility against the lack of appetite for crisis management operations and uh, against the lack of appetite for okay. military engagement. And the, the, so the second quick point about mm -hmm. the budgets, of course uh, you should know that the military budget of NATO and Russia are completely incomparable, but as a way of uh, because, of course, NATO budget is 10, 11, 12 times more than the Russian budget. And, I mean, you can compare okay, it. Okay, okay, yeah. Just a quick Your question. question. Your, your, yes, go. just a quick thing that actually an idea for CIPRI. Mm -hmm. You know, you could also look at the PIS dividends um, and count, because we were doing this inside the mission and inside our government, to try to calculate the PIS dividends from the cooperation when Russia and NATO were cooperating, actually, and the PIS dividends for each European countries and Russia that we were gaining when okay. we were not on this deterrence mode. Okay. And uh, actually, this is a very interesting um, statistics that you might get. Okay, excellent. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. And I, I'm going to direct that question in particular to yourself uh, and, and also Judy, uh, um, James. Because Julian was meant to be here. Um, that's why. Sorry, my apologies for that. Um, the lady there, yes, I'll come to you. You have it on the, the seat, on the, on the arm. And again, oh, yeah. just press the button. No, oh, you've got it. the mic. Okay, so who you are and your question. So, my name is Stella Veliki. I am a citizen, German. And I have studied physics and informatics, and I have uh, some question concerning cyber attacks. Um, we don't have a um, cyber defense policy at the European level, as I know. And um, you are working now uh, to this uh, cyber defense policy that I know. Uh, my question is, um, do you have some special cases for the country? If you have a global cyber attack, uh, is uh, not only one or two person, is, uh, is one or two countries, uh, secret services that are organizing these attacks, is very clearly. So um, do you have um, against this country uh, some san sanction, if, if you know what for country are, do you have a special case for Russia? Because Russia is doing a, lo a lot of attacks and nobody is sp speaking about it. And secondly, how are you 
um, prepare against a cyber attack in the nuclear domain. You have a lot of nuclear um, reactors, you have a lot of nuclear uh, arms, and if you have a cyber attack, you have no control sure. on all. Okay, thank you. There's another lady there. Sorry, I'll come to you. Yourself, yes. <coughs> Olivia K. Max, thank you. Uh, you've talked of a different security environment today, different uh, threats and challenges that uh, NATO, the EU, and other governments need to uh, address. I'm just wondering what opportunities there are for a different thinking of security, a shared security, a collective one, where uh, NATO, the EU, would be starting to engage societies, people, in the responses to address these uh, security challenges. Um, Particularly, I'm thinking of uh, engaging people in addressing the root causes of conflict rather than just the surface and responding in uh, quick and quick fixes. And you mean a more community-based response? Is that what you're referring For to? For example, but I'm thinking not only community, but individuals, civil society, society, just engaging people to go across the divide between EU, NATO and people, uh, which we're seeing uh, the, the divide growing a lot more. And have you... Um, have you seen an example of where this kind of activity is happening and working from your perspective? I'm seeing um, definitely initiatives wanting to go that way, mm -hmm. but eventually it's blocking after the discussion to moving to actually working together on the ground and listening. Where does the block come from, in your opinion? Will, I think. Political will. Political will, um, intention. Uh, perhaps, uh, yes, okay. what, what's the intention behind okay, the action? Great. I will come back to some of you. Let me uh, get the panel to respond to this first uh, uh, round, and I will come to you, I promise you. Um, the military mobility question and, you know, the appetite that well, was raised. I'm not sure it was and really, the, the really a question, rather, but a number of comments sort of uh, connecting everything together. Uh, as I said before, I mean, NATO has been re-emphasizing collective defense at least since 2014 after Russia illegally annexed Crimea and engaged subsequently in hybrid war in eastern Ukraine. And projects or efforts such as military mobility are part of that reinforcement strategy. I mean, there is nothing else to say. Um, and of course, uh, I mean, I have no comment on whether allies are or are not uh, willing to engage in operations because it's the allies who make the decision. I mean, NATO, uh, NATO is not constantly looking out there for the next crisis to, to put the feet in. I mean, uh, NATO's mandate has always been defensive. What about the peace dividends idea? What was that? The peace dividends idea. When you, when you saw cooperation happening, you could see the peace dividends versus the non-cooperation is the point that you were making um, um, in terms of, you know, if that, that data was revealed, you could see the business case for doing things differently. I mean, of course, I mean, uh, the ultimate peace dividend is uh, predictability and transparency. I mean, we need to definitely, I mean, uh, we need to work on that constantly. And yes, uh, there are interests uh, or there are areas where NATO's and Russia's interests uh, uh, could converge, uh, but obviously it has to be reciprocal, it has to be transparent. Um, yeah. Okay, James, can you, do you want to address some of that, some of those issues, but also this point about cyber and, you know, preparedness, 
readiness, uh, both in terms of nuclear, but actually both the policy framework, but also how do you create sanctions in this new territory if people aren't going to play ball? Okay, thank you. Uh, I agree with everything that, you, um, that the last speaker uh, said, particularly about questions of sort of deployment, deployment in Afghanistan. It's a matter for member states if they, if they choose to do that. If they wanted to do an operation, it would be possible to, to do that, but, but it is a question for, uh, for them. The point about sort of uh, uh, transportation, mobility, lift capacity, all that sort of stuff, I agree, has come into sharper focus um, since, uh, well, since Ukraine and since, since, uh, since a sort of arc of instability developed on our, to our, in our very near neighbourhood. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really, it's sort of back to the future in that respect. It's back to the sort of things that we, that we used to think about. And the Commission, through its sort of transport policy, is, is, uh, is ready to provide funding to, to, to help that, that, um, that process. Um, when it comes down to a sort of peace dividend, as I think I said in my opening remarks, we're... Uh, we're not really in that sort of in that world now. We find ourselves in a, in, a, in a different world, and it doesn't mean that cooperation with Russia is excluded. Far from it. I mean, in a previous life, I spent a long time on the Iran nuclear negotiations with uh, with Russian colleagues, and a very very fruitful uh, process it was. It was too. But just on the cyber point. Um, the EU actually had a cyber, has had a cyber security strategy since 2013. Um, mm. And uh, uh, so it's not the case that we've only just woken up to this, but it is the case that the threat has grown exponentially. If you look at this sort of history of cyber, uh, you probably go back about 11 years to what happened to Estonia all the way through what happened to Ukraine's uh, power grid at the end of last year. And you realize that uh, there are, there's a criminal element to it, because so you saw things like WannaCry, not Petya this year, although was WannaCry a commercial enterprise? If it was, it was the least successful one in the history of cybercrime, I think. <laughs> Uh, because if you're going to hold people to ransom, then you ought to have one, more than one Bitcoin envelope to receive the payments in. Mm. Um, uh, so uh, that's why the Commission brought forward a new package of proposals. The proposals, a lot of this stuff is not hard, but it's, you know. So building resilience is about making yourself harder to attack. So that's about, as we become ever more interconnected, uh, you know, the darker side of that, uh, to quote one of your award winners, is the fact that we've become ever more vulnerable. And mm. if you look at a vulnerable, a connected devices sort of map of the world, you see that we are disproportionately vulnerable. These things don't have any security settings on them. Mm. So there's a basic level of stuff which fits very well with the EU about setting standards and industrial policy. There's stuff about research to stay ahead of that. There's stuff about procedures. So if you're, if you're quicker to, uh, if you're harder to attack and quicker to respond, we've had a network of, of uh, 
computer incident response teams. We now propose to strengthen that network. We have a blueprint for what happens, which is like a playbook in the event of a major, a major cyber okay. attack. But, sorry. Mm. But coming on to the point that the, the questioner made about uh, attribution. Attribution is a big problem. Mm. That's partly the, the way the internet is created. It's partly because people haven't sort of we still use a thing, uh, a version of internet uh, uh, protocols, which is version 4, which thousands of people have the same IP address, and it's hard to do. But the EU, uh, Federica Mogherini and the Foreign Affairs Council, came up with something called the Cyber Toolbox, which was all about this, and it was about a range of responses all the way to sort of sanctions mm -hmm. in the event of a hostile uh, cy cyber attack. So there are, there, are, uh, there are things that we can do. Proving who did it is, is quite difficult. Matter. It's more difficult than Agatha Christie. Mm. <laughs> no, indeed. Before you, just before I bring it over to you, um, but the, what, what you're saying is that we have strategy, we have a set of steps we can take, but in terms of actual delivery, should something happen well, next I mean, week, um, we're not really there, are we? Well, we have... We have, a, we have a network of, of what are called CISA, citizen response teams. Right. And after WannaCry, that was quite quick in sharing information about things. And sharing information about the threat is halfway to sort of dealing with it. We have money that we're putting into various places, for instance, on traceability, on cyber forensics. We're putting more money into Europol. We're, 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 we're upping our game on that. Mm -hmm. We have money through the European Defence Fund that through a, a network of uh, centres of excellence we're going, to, okay. we're going to spend on developing cyber capabilities and cyber skills. So okay. we are putting real money into this and, and in a very structured way. Sure, absolutely. But I suppose the issue for citizens, and with the question from citizens, is actually, is there some kind of um, scenario playing out that you've, you're ready for that actually gives confidence to citizens that actually, if this happened in Europe, that cut across three or four nations, would we know what we were doing? But don't come back to that. I mean, you, can I just one other thing? Very briefly, though. One other thing, very, very mm. briefly. We have a thing called the uh, Security of Network and Information Systems Directive. So sure. all the things like power grids and essential services are covered by that. They all have to have a plan. They all have to have done something to actually protect the infrastructure. So that is another thing that, 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 that is out there. There is a degree of preparedness. But part of cybersecurity is people in this room taking responsibility for this. Everybody sees the internet as a free good. Sure. You all can't be, you know, we all can't be bothered sort of backing up our system or putting the latest patch on it. We help to create the vulnerability. So cyber security is, is a team sport as much as anything else. And also else. an individual responsibility. Paul, you come back to that, some of those points, but yeah. also address the point that was made by the lady in the back about actually taking a more whole society yeah. approach. Yeah, I'd like to address that and connect it to the question that was asked about the public opinion and transport uh, and, and military... Uh, uh, but do be brief, my, my friend. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we have a situation where there is an intervention 
fatigue throughout uh, Western, Western societies, I would say, which is partly a, a fatigue about military interventions. It's because if you look at the record of the last 20 years, they haven't been very successful. Few of them have actually solved the problem. Some of them have arrested the problem and kept it in suspended animation. But we see in the Balkans that that's fragile, and we see in the Sahel that it isn't even... Uh, it hasn't even really arrested the problem. So, yes, of course, that means we need uh, a much more holistic approach uh, that involves civil society, that involves uh, uh, foresight, prevention, institution building, development assistance, uh, uh, um, uh, managed migration, uh, um, which in, in includes uh, the possibility of legal migration. But ultimately... The, the question that your question to me slightly begged was, do we nevertheless need armed forces? And do we nevertheless need uh, the possibility to resort to the use of force uh, in uh, crisis management? And the, the consensus within the uh, EU member states is, yes, we do need that. And we uh, took a peace div dividend, as was described, for, for 25 years. But did we get more peace at the end of it? Um, you know, did our environment become safer? Were we safe either? You know, can you really deal with Daesh only with soft power? Can you really deal with uh, a, a, a power which decides to uh, intervene militarily in its neighbors um, uh, only with soft power? Um, ultimately, uh, I think that the member states felt not, and that's why there is more of an emphasis now on the military side of defense, along with the comprehensive approach, which you were very right to, to point out is necessary. You know, the EU in the world is seen basically as a touchy-feely soft power, not as a, not as a, a, a muscular organization that, is, uh, that sees all its problems as nails and only has a hammer. Uh, the question is, is it going to have a hammer at all? Thank you. Okay. No, good, okay. Um, quite a few hands were up. There's a gentleman at the back who's been very patient. I will bring you in. The gentleman there and the lady there. Gentleman there. And then I'll... Hi, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Adrian Garcia. I'm going to sin twice here, if you'll allow me, by first disregarding the title of the session and looking outwards, and the second being I have kind of a cluster of tiny questions that I'm just going to toss out there uh, mm, for whoever wants I'll it. I'll see about Stop that. Stop me at any time. Okay. Uh, so Make a start. Yes. Okay. So coming back to the first round of comments that we had in this panel, we hypothesized a group of countries that would say, all right, we're going to take the next generation of aircraft carriers, and another group saying, we're going to take the next generation of combat vehicles. Uh, and I think that this is an eminently sound idea if in the long run everyone kind of steps together and, and stays within signaling distance. Uh, but to me, the elephant that is not in the room is the other major allied defense investor who's putting money into research and, uh, and deploying capabilities, and that's the United States mm -hmm. uh, and Canada to another extent. Uh, but we also have others. And so my question is, what mechanisms do we see that could arise that would allow the U.S. or Canada to plug into PESCO? Or will NATO be coordinating this? Okay. Um, yeah, if I can just one, one more little thing is tiny about, one. Sure, yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. Is about how are we going to understand in this context uh, strategic autonomy? Is it in the French model of security of supply? So repeat that point again. How are we going to understand strategic autonomy? And are we looking at the future 
and assuming that Donald Trump has won and that the U.S. will never be a partner worthy of the name? Or are we saying that the U.S. will in 2020 come back a little older, a little wiser, but again, being willing to unconditionally support NATO allies? So, okay. Thank right. you. Thank you. Lady here. Again, you just take the mic out of the seat and press the button beside you. This one. Thank you. Um, I'm Ines Sabalic, Croatian Press. Mm -hmm. um, Paul Taylor, would you care to elaborate a bit on uh, differences between Germany and France um, views on this European defense project? The first one. The second one, um, um, what are the differences between uh, old Europe and the new Europe in, uh, in, this, in this project? Um, okay. Third, do we, mm. um, uh, do we presume that uh, a common security and defense European is something in place so we built European defense on it, or rather that European security and defense, common, I mean common uh, security and defense, will strengthen with the European defense project. Okay, Thanks. great, thank you. Gentleman here. Um, Aris Kokinos from uh, Eurobol.com. Um, some of you must have heard about the Internet Plus project, which is a project that is um, led by Xiaomi in China, a manufacturer of smartphones and which is backed by the Chinese government. And the goal of Internet Plus is to create a second Internet, so to say, um, which would be emancipated from the ICANN, the International Corporation for Assigning Numbers and Names that is US-based. So I would like to ask Mr. Morrison, what would Europe make of the possibility of two Internets in the coming years? Goodness me, great. Okay, so James, you have two, a couple of questions. Um, obviously, that one, uh, what would we make of two internets? Um, good luck with that. Um, but the other thing about um, PESCO, and actually, is, is the club open for those outside of Europe in particular, but also the reference being to US and Canada, etc.? Would you address that point, and then I'll move to you, Paul, and then also to yours. Okay. So some nice, easy questions there. I mean, P PESCO first, as, as was pointed out, uh, let's get the thing launched first uh, before, before, we, before we look any, any more broadly at that. Generally, CSDP, in terms of operations, uh, is open uh, and is, is open to uh, third country partners to participate in. I don't know the answer in the case of PESCO, but then you don't need to look at this only from, from an EU lens. If PESCO is just uh, groups of member states deciding to go ahead and develop certain capabilities and be bound by that, then uh, in many cases that, that overlaps with NATO work on these things, and the US is fully sort of... Uh, participatory uh, in, in NATO. I mean, it's also, when you get into the question of interoperability of equipment, NATO has long had 
sort of uh, work, work, in, work in this area. It's just that the question of fragmentation within the EU, where I saw, a, I saw a, a lovely sort of graphic at some point, you know, 23 different sorts of battle tanks and et cetera, et cetera, is much, much, much more acute. And that fragmentation costs about 30 billion euros a year. It's completely unproductive. Fragmentation. Really. Mm. We can see the reasons why it exists. Um, so, um, so that, uh, you know, that that's 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 sort of what I'd say on that. Um, on the second question about the internet and another internet, we're at a, a very interesting point on the internet. The mm. internet is something that was uh, built on trust by academics for good reasons, for sharing information has increasingly been used to sell us things, is now being used to sell us things in an entirely different way through uh, uh, mind data being used for targeting and influencing and disinformation campaigns. So there is, I detect, a move now, and partly because ICANN was effectively spun off as independent at the end of last year, there is a move to look more at the sort of governance of the internet. Mm. Now, you're right that there are others around the world, and you quoted China, who think, well, the internet, you know, it's all American-dominated, American investment. Maybe we can develop something of our own. That still falls within the scope of if you go down the route of some international rules of the road, whether there's more than one internet or not, you want something that is universal in terms of in terms of the uh, in terms of sort of norms and norms and norms and standards. Uh, in terms of the internet that we have now, um, you do have issues, as I said before, in terms of cyber security. Uh, ICANN has uh, domain name registries; they're national registries. That's decentralised. Um, you have a thing called the WHOIS, which is the, 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 the log of those. The data isn't the same in all of them. <clears throat> and then you have a problem with IP addresses that most of, the, most, of the, most of Europe is using a thing called IP version 4, where you use something, uh, a carrier-grade network, to stack 2,000 users behind one IP address. So you have a lot of things to do with the architecture of the internet, which are also to do with the internet, uh, which, are, which are to do with the, the, uh, the governance of the internet, which I think need to be urgently addressed mm. in, the, in, the, in the sort of cyber world in which we find ourselves, mm. uh, because uh, it is extremely difficult, as I said before, to attribute anything, which makes cyber the perfect deniable weapon it's quite cheap. You can go on the dark net. You can rent something, mm. um, and it's it's impossible to largely impossible to trace. And that has to that has to change. So it's rather like what happened with, if you like, globalization. What I would call happy globalization, mm. uh, and then the financial crisis came along, sure. and we realised that risk was globalised. It's the same thing with connectivity. It's great but it has a sort of darker side, and in order to preserve it, we need to do some things about One it. One of the recommendations from our uh, Debating Security Plus uh, our, uh, online brainstorm was actually to have some sort of global 
uh, governance on cyber. Are you hopeful? I mean, do, do you see, very briefly though, in terms of, are you hopeful about that and what steps might be required to, to achieve it? I think you'd be looking at, I mean, people talk about, uh, talk about an extra Geneva Convention mm. on cyber warfare things. Mm. And it's true, if you believe the uh, uh, Jared Cohen, Eric Schmidt quote, which I always quote a lot, which is, in the future, all wars will begin as cyber wars. Mm. So there's, a, there's, a, there's something Absolutely. in that. But, you know, through the UN uh, and through, 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 if you like, the, the, the international architecture, there's quite a big gap at the moment on the, on, on, in, terms, in terms of these things because it has grown up basically as a commercial enterprise, um, the rules are sort of set by, uh, by, by the key players in that, in, okay. that, in, that, in that enterprise. Okay. Before Paul, I'll bring you in, uh, please. Or it's working, I Okay, think. sorry. Um, to answer the question about how you could plug in Canada and the U.S. within the possible European uh, cooperation under PESCO or any mm. other organization, um, let, I, I'm not sure exactly how that would happen. I'm, I wouldn't be concerned about Canada as such. <laughs> um, Canada is not a very big arms-producing country. <laughs> no, no, like, it buys a lot of... Do you think size matters in this case? Um, <laughs> the thing, what matters is that most of the equipment, can, uh, by the way, full disclosure, I'm Canadian. <laughs> so okay. uh, Canada buys a lot of its uh, weapons from U.S. sources. Uh, Canada has an agreement that is very little, well, little known on production sharing, which makes it so that there is a kind of a semi-free market for weapons between Canada and the U.S., Canada still does some business with European producers, but not that much. But, uh, the U.S. produce everything. Every single thing you can think of in the weapons you, you, uh, is being produced in the U.S. So they are, in fact, autonomous completely uh, and by far. Um, so it's how the, the conditions for them to, in, to be included into a, 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 a structure that would... Uh, commit them, and then that would also uh, request some kind of reports about where they're at and so on. Yeah, they wouldn't have the same motivational leverage, really. Yeah, not, not necessarily. No, I don't think so. The other thing I think that needs to be taken into, a con into consideration and has not been discussed a lot and is the fact that a lot of U.S. companies, uh, U.S. Uh, weapons companies, are present in, the, in, Europe in Europe and are actually very large producers. Mm. Um, for instance, General Dynamics... Uh, is is the largest uh, armored vehicle supplier in Europe. Um, so this is sometimes it hurts mm. to see these things. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have the exact share of uh, GD land systems in Europe, uh, so we can't rank it into our data. But um, it is very very big. Okay. So of, I think in a way, possibly indirectly, the U.S. will play a role in, especially when it comes to weapons, because. Um, European countries are customers of, of U.S. weapons. Indeed. Uh, if you remember, this, um, there was a, a mini-crisis when Poland opted to, to buy helicopters from U.S. instead of the French. Indeed. And yeah. so there was a lot of um, frustration from the French side uh, considering this. But the thing is, you, again, decision-making is at the nation-state nation level, and they're free to decide that they would prefer to use yeah. X or Y. Regarding and the day, it is a marketplace. It's a 
It is. Um, you're not. You're not locked into making decisions that you have to buy European weapons. Precisely. Regarding strategic autonomy, this is not new. This is an old. Uh, it goes back to the um, to the to the creation of the nuclear arsenal in France. This willingness to have as much as possible uh, capable to be to to sources to source anything related to major weapons from your own uh, country or national okay. capacity. Okay. I did want to comment a little bit on the strategic autonomy as well. I guess the question is how does Europe deal with uh, the U.S. third offset strategy? Um, and I think we've seen the response to that uh, through the European Defence Fund and all the funding mechanisms, etc. But I think uh, at the end of the day, Europe will need to take even a step further. Um, uh, yesterday, there was a report that came out uh, from Globsec um, Policy Institute uh, focusing on NATO adaptation. And one of the conclusions or suggestions is that uh, Europe should consider a DARPA type of organization because ultimately, given the nature of the business, uh, EU or Europe will never be able to ful fully benefit from, from, uh, from whatever comes out or doesn't come out of, uh, of DARPA. So um, definitely a much more action will be needed. Uh, and also on the US role and commitment to European security and defense because I've sensed this um, and I want to take a step back, if I may, as a private citizen. Uh, I can't believe that a year on we're still discussing Donald Trump uh, because, uh, frankly speaking, uh, I haven't seen a change in U.S. commitment to European security and defense. Yes, there may have been a change in rhetorics, but the whole defense uh, spending issue is not new. And for those of you who know history of NATO, it goes back essentially to the 1950s when mm -hmm. NATO switched to a nuclear deterrence posture because the Europeans were not able to deliver on the conventional posture. So um, I, I'd be kind of um, uh, a bit, bit, bit cautious, you know, about... Uh, uh, sure, but we've never really encountered a personality as Mr. Trump in terms of tone, deportment and capability to really be kind of fairly direct as a, you know, right, leader. But, my counter-argument would be, look at the leadership in Europe. I mean, there have been changes as well. Indeed. Good point. Paul? Let me try and address a little bit the US question uh, and then the question of what France and Germany, what France, how France and Germany see European defense differently. Um, the US thing, nobody in Europe through PESCO or otherwise, not even the French, are trying to push the United States out of European security or paint them out of the picture. That would be to do an enormous favor to Russia, which has been trying to do that both in its Soviet era and, and now uh, to a degree in the way it's, uh, it frames European security again. Um, but... The United States has started to a degree to paint him, itself in a, in a rather more distant color in European security. This didn't start with Donald Trump, but he is still president of the United States. Mm. So the Trump problem has not gone away. Um, and the Trump problem is about is the U.S. commitment to um, uh, European security unconditional or is it transactional? Uh, and is the U.S. attention span constant or is it flickering? Uh, and um, neither of those questions has been resolved after a year of the Trump administration. So um, we want America in, particularly in anything that involves contingencies involving Russia, 
because Russia is a nuclear power and a major military power. And no European in their right mind imagines uh, risking a conflict with Russia without the United States on their side and by their side. However, there are many contingencies where the United States will not want to be involved. We have already saw that. We saw it in Libya where a new model came up. We saw it in Syria where the Europeans were able to do nothing once the United States decided that it, after all, was not going to enforce its red line. Uh, and we've, we, we see it elsewhere. So the Europeans have to be ready for contingencies where the United States will not be involved or not be in the lead or not be directly involved. Remember in Mali and throughout now what we're doing uh, in the Sahel, the United States is deeply involved as a provider of, in, of satellite intelligence, reconnaissance, surveillance, uh, uh, to some extent, logistics, and so on. And, and um, you know, the, anybody who was surprised that, uh, that, that a member of the American Special Forces got killed in Niger the other week, well, you know, that's because they're there alongside us. Just as we are, uh, our special forces are in Syria and in Libya, uh, and in Iraq alongside the Americans once. This doesn't get talked about a lot in public, but that's my job. I'm allowed to talk about things that people in official positions aren't allowed to talk about. Um, so, France, so, so, you know, we want to keep America in. There's no guarantee that Trump is a, a one-year phenomenon or a four-year phenomenon. And Trumpism, as a view of America's uh, security mm. interests, um, that you know, America wants to be, uh, take fewer risks in the world and wants the world to sort of uh, think its problems out for itself and, and take, will take a, con a more narrow view of its national interest, I think it would be very foolish for us to build a European security policy on that assumption now. France and Germany... You know, France tends to want hard security and see hard security as what, what matters. More capabilities, more forces to go out and slay dragons uh, in dangerous neighborhoods, more, pe more allies to go and kick down doors and take names or kill bad guys. Uh, Germany, uh, I quote Angela Merkel as having told uh, Jaap de Hofschreffer, uh, early in her term when, when he came pleading to her for more German forces for Afghanistan, um, uh, well, you know, we have the Bundeswehr, but it's not there to, it's not there to fight. Um, so we have to bridge. That's the gap that has to be bridged. It has to be bridged by some internal reform in Germany. It has to be bridged by the French taking much more on board the Germans' comprehensive security view uh, that all problems are not nails and cannot be dealt with uh, and solved by hammers. Um, so that synthesis is needed. We're not there yet, but this is what this process is essentially about. Um, and that's what people like me think it's worth uh, dedicating some of our time to advocating. Thank you. Colleagues, all good things have to come to an end, or tend to come to an end. I could have gone on for a bit longer. My commitment to you was to complete this session by quarter past. I'm already... Three minutes over that. Um, thank you. And of those of you who didn't get the chance to uh, have your questions heard, use the Twitter handle. Um, uh, please post them, and we'll try and make sure that our speakers or others can respond. So do use that, hashtag Security Summit and all um, the Friends of Europe, um, and we'll, we'll endeavour to uh, ensure a response to you. Um, I hope that we've helped you to connect 
the dots of some of the issues around modern-day security in the 21st century um, and debate some of the kind of key issues, especially those that have come out of our Debate and Security Plus report and the 10 recommendations. Again, I urge you to look at those. And I hope that we've helped you to think about the changes we need to make in terms of policy practice and potentially mindsets um, and left you with some food for thought as you go back to your desks. Thank you very much for being here. And our next offering... Our next offering is related to this is a discussion on the potential of a single security budget. Is it the lever that can actually create greater def uh, defence integration in Europe? So that's happening on the, remind me, the 6th of December in a place near here. So if you haven't heard about it, please go log on to our website and you can get news on, uh, on that. It's already fairly oversubscribed, but don't hesitate to see if you can register. But that's our next offering uh, on the Peace, Security and Defence programme from Friends of Europe. Let's thank our speakers in the usual way. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your week and your day in safe travels. Thank you very much.